Hi everyone, thank you for coming and attending our talk this evening as part of the MA Writing Program's Collective Conversations for the RCA 2020 show. We're so pleased to welcome you to our panel discussion, SICK, Breaking Down the Language of Illness, chaired by our guest speaker, Johanna Hedva. Johanna is an artist and writer whose practice encompasses performance, installation, music, and literature, with writing binding these various narrative approaches together. Johanna writes of their work that there is always a body, one that is permeable, dependent, one that is scrolling and expanding, one that is more than one. Johanna's bodies branch and sprout, collapse and fail. In 2015, Johanna wrote an essay called Sick Women Theory, which confronted the dominant discourse around political action and ableism greatly at the time of its publishing. Five years on, these same issues still persist, perhaps even more so than before. I think it is safe to say that this conversation would take a far different tone and attitude to sickness and wellness if it weren't for Johanna's sick women's theory and their growing body of work surrounding bodies and the way we understand them. Today, Johanna will be reading from their new book, Minerva, The Miscarriage of the Brain, available now to pre-order by Sming Sming and Wolfman Books. This is a book that collects over a decade of a decade of Hedva's work. The extracts we're about to read um, are focused on sickness, its bodies and its objects, through varying scales, subjects, and conditions. As we move through, move away from, come back to, hold on to, strive towards, fall from the neoliberal capitalist narrative of wellness and the ever-increasing digitized space, how do we define our bodies? And through these frameworks, how have others defined them for us? Through diagnosis, popular culture, technology, industry? And how can our writing ever be discussed for its craft rather than its subject as women, mm -hmm. women who write about our own bodies? Together, my fellow peers, Harry Welsh, Laura Robertson, Hattie Gibson, and myself, Nina Hans, with Johanna Hedva, will be exploring the subject of sickness the noun, but also the state of being, to the language surrounding it. Before we go any further, I would like to give a small warning on the sensitive subjects we are about to address. We will be discussing serious mental and physical illnesses and um, along with all that comes with them. For some of us, these conversations would have been impossible to have only a few years, maybe even months ago, and we respect where in this lifelong process of healing you might currently be. Wherever you are, we invite you to join us as we attempt to break down the language of illness together. I would now like to welcome Johanna Hedva. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, um, I'm coming to you from Berlin. I am a Korean American person who has black hair in a bun and I'm in a room full of many books and magical objects. Um, I'm excited to join um, these four people. I think that um, I was excited to be here because I could start to um, ruminate a lot on questions that I think this year has brought up in a lot of people's minds around illness, not necessarily as a personal experience, but as a social experience or a political vector. Um, 
I also wanted to um, kind of echo what Nina just said there about illness not only being a noun, but being a verb. Um, so I think that uh, it's a question that's on everybody's minds in terms of how we are bound to each other in our vulnerabilities or in our need for care um, as a society and as a politic and as a social body that is formed by an ethics. So I'm excited to see what um, you all have been working on for the last few years. And maybe, yes, it's important to mention that you worked on your uh, thesis projects before uh, COVID really hit in March. So one of the things maybe that I will kind of uh, posit for this event is how writing about illness doesn't really follow a chronic timeline even though we're dealing with issues of what it means to have a chronic illness often. Um, and I say that as someone who wrote Sick Woman Theory more than five years ago and seeing that text return this year as being somewhat relevant um, is an interesting way to start to think about how these things circulate in cyclical ways. Um, so I won't ramble on anymore, just sort of dropping that into the conceptual bucket. and. Um, uh, as far as our order goes, each of the students will read a short piece, some of them accompanied by video or images, um, and then we'll have a discussion that's about 25 minutes long. And at the end, uh, I'll conclude our event with a short reading from my new book. So, first up is Patty. Hi, um, I'm Hattie. Um, I have uh, brown curly hair and I'm in a rather sparse bedroom with a bed and a desk and some plants. Um, and uh, I'll be reading from my final major project called Angie. So Angie is a root um, that relates to vessels and cavities of the body. It's a prefix for growth, a bag from which corruption and seduction can become active deviations as in the case of a tumour, where its frames become porous, where excess can assume form. It denotes something that is changing, shape-shifting, a strange bag, its body or bodies, its movements, their movements, caught in words like distempered, a word given to a body disordered through excess or deficiency. Metastasis, the movement of pain, disease or function from one part of the body to another. Angiogenesis, the formation of new blood vessels. And margin as a term used in oncology to determine if the borders of excised tumours are cancer-free. All these words are formed from some kind of mapping, an observation to observe from the Proto-Indo-European root spec. Some other forms relating to spec include espionage, spectrum, despise, suspect, despicable, bishop, telescope. They try to flatten disruption, a rupture, a slippage, a lump, a form of excess, a waste, that pushes against these words, a system of codes. Try to process it, try to hold it, try to own it. It was there once in an image, its image, or my image, or their image, that unveiled a mass so dense that light could not pass through. 
She stopped there, she grew there. I'm going to read a section from my project called Lump. How to describe a lump. She may swell or be a small knot, a simulation or growing land, where stories shift, where sources grow distant. A lump grows her own blood vessels, roots, red tentacles tie onto her environment, curl around her host as the formation of new receptacles, shells binding to nearby blood cells through circuits, limbs, outwards. Strange forms slither through these mounds of wet flesh. What images told us this? See those photographic plates that first drew them out through flows of bismuth and oil, injected elements under skin. They latched onto her roots and brought them out beyond borders through rays. A lump does not just survive. She flourishes with its etymological twists, with its roots in French, which in turn stem from Latin for flower. Mutations become arboreal, with roots multiple mixed, marvellous, congealed. And mapped with a matched virulence, here come her images, mounted, she is sliced from high above, radiate her parts, gaze at her against the screen, her sprouts and splits caught, pruned, she is flattened, her parts categorised within mechanical margins. I travel through these diagrams, these networks, radiant cavities carry my gaze. I am in this machine, this gridded laboratory of somatic tricks. I see her shapes as what look like clouds, through avenues of code, zoom in, zoom out, zoom in further. These movements try to transcribe her. She is colossal in this environment. She lunges forwards with forms rotting, oozing outwards with bulbous grossness, morbid molecules that palpitate and push through this grid. These virtual pores of regimented signs. She bleeds through their margins, grows longer veins, fluorescent blooms with teeth that gnaw at this image that I'm in, with her potent pulses, multiple and barely legible, rapid flesh. Think slimy fluids, fraught compositions. A virus with its roots that mean to flow or to bleed. Roots for foul fluids. Like she flows and flows and I'm drowning in her fluids. I'm forgetting her roots. I don't care for them now. Her etymologies are deceptive. Because a lump has no origin story. Because she moves as natural and artificial to swell with both, to make something new, something more intangible, diffuse. Something multi-material, multi-seed, multi-cloth. Bodies take over and slip and slither through frames, out to the ocean found between borders. Mine to not mine, not mine to mine. We become amorphous of darkened networks carried through waves where light tries to pant in and out and in further through our tattered selves. But we are evolved in these vessels and tassels of impurities. Growing impermeable, we are systematic breakdowns to flourish corporeal excess to seep as we break from cognition. To fall into the body and to fall out of the body, hours to not hours, not hours to hours, spinning webs in endless flows that reach into and out of molecules. We are congealed cells extending from state to state, disruptions in circuits, disruptions in productivity. Water is something you cannot hold, I once read. Beyond the grasp of this mechanical eye, 
streams of cells breed beyond its control. We wash away the names given to us, names for these organs, limbs and skin, and this imaging machine with its parts, bits and cogs. Hi there, um, I'm Harry. Um, I'm going to read a section from my final major project titled Chronic on Textures, Illness and the Endless Scroll, um, focusing on the fragility of health uh, and the aesthetics of wellness. So the excerpt that I'm going to read today is titled The Invisible Nature of Fragility. Um, I'm currently sitting in a room with a lot of patterns in the background, but I have a, a black Zoom background um, to stop the glare of the light. Um, I have long brown hair and I'm wearing purple earrings, which are coming in and out of the frame due to the, due to the uh, Zoom background. <laughs> um, so this is titled The Invisible Nature of Fragility. Writing can make the invisible visible. The very act of committing words to paper forms a narrative for flesh and bones and finds the phrases for what, in daily life, may be unspeakable. The sick person writes their existence into being. They write their view of their body, their understanding of their human form, their pain and their sensations of their physicality into reality. This is not to say that without being documented through language, it does not exist. But language and writing sound the siren, expose us as a patient, and alert the reader, the viewer, or the public. In writing the sick body into being, we present questions. Do people feel empathy, sympathy, or even understand? It brings into question as to whether the sick person, when in the public realm, must be likable. In writing, they must present themselves in a certain way to fit the format of illness that we perceive as the norm. Even health abnormalities have perceived norms. As I write about the reader or the viewer, I'm aware of the implication that the text is for the person reading it. Considering that as women, we are constantly presented with how to construct views of our body and selfhood in the public eye, writing about illness can very easily become another extension of this. Whether this presentation of the self, self is through the lens of social media, text, or even simply in reality, the person with illness must perform a certain type of managing illness for it to be deemed culturally acceptable. We say that people fought an illness when they have recovered, and we also say it defeated them when they don't. The writer creates a narrative to their plight, but it may not be one that the reader sympathizes with if it doesn't fit into our narrow projection of what being ill, recovering, or suffering means. In the writing of sickness, illness, and health memoirs, visibility is often brought into stark relief. How do we visualize illness? In the Western world, we have a very certain visual attached to illness. And this leads to scenarios where those with invisible symptoms must not only advocate for themselves, but also constantly prove the authenticity of their pain and the dire straits of their health by exposing their struggles. It has become accepted that the exterior of the body reflects the interior state which leads to assumed health based on aesthetics. Although this text focuses on chronic physical illness, whether illness is mental or physical or somewhere in between, disorders can be invisible and change the way that an individual comprehends the world and themselves. Sickness can be made further hidden and, appearance, and these appearances can compound these assumptions the sick woman must also now wrestle with the trope of the wounded woman and therefore often conforms unknowingly 
to the ideology of the post-wounded woman, the one who does not complain, who embraces their illness and embodies quite literally the phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Pain, mental struggles, uncurable sickness, they only forward the late capitalist feminist empowered boss woman. They are strong, independent, and feel pain, but merely carry on and shatter the glass ceiling. Our weaknesses, our futility, our frustration, and our anger are not documented. This is not the accepted view of being ill. We should be ill graciously, without complaint, with gratitude for what we do have. Write a TED talk about how illness was a catalyst for change in our lives that forced us through tough times. Better to have burnt out than fade away. Ideally, people say it, illness, made them stronger. They force it. It was hard, but mental strength and other people's kindness pulled them through. But what about when it doesn't? What about when illness breaks us open, physically, emotionally, mentally, and makes us give up hope in the world and ourselves? Chronic illness is particularly sensitive to this line of thought as it endures and does not conform to the narrative of the success story. With chronic illness, we don't necessarily recover. We don't have the light bulb moment. We need physical or emotional support. We struggle, we need care, we break down, we cry. We can't deal with it, it's too much. In ideal stories, strength, love, and kindness prevail. With chronic illness, in spite of our strength and others' kindness and love, we can still be ill. The exterior of the body may appear seamless, may appear healthy or well, but as this is not always the case, we must start to dismantle our ingrained visions of health. These ideals are long established in our society and invisible illness is an area of healthcare that we are only just starting to address. The exterior of the body does not always represent its interior state. And although holistic practitioners take an integrated approach, most medicine practices do not. In our contemporary culture, illness must be visible to be validated. But when visuals reveal nothing we can perceive, we cannot imagine or develop our comprehension of the body beyond what we see. Our approach to invisible illness leads to those with disorders such as chronic fatigue syndrome and others having to expose their illness, validate it, and then fight for their own advocacy. Illness is viewed as seemingly simple. Either it is visible or non-existent. This is not to diminish the plight of those with visible illnesses. It just further compounds naive assumptions on the basis of assumed health, which in turn reinforces how our society has formed buildings, policies, policies, activities, and how life is structured for and around those with fully able bodies. The chronic illness community attempts to advocate for itself, but what about those who have no energy to advocate and therefore to push reform due to chronic illness itself? Um, Illness and identity are linked and can help those of us with who are chronically ill to contextualize, advocate and deal with our myriad, myriad of symptoms. Solidarity is also important, feeling connected to those who have empathy with your situation through lived experience. But chronic illness can lead to a feeling that the body should not be trusted. It sometimes feels as though a body that has been ill can never be trusted again. Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Hattie. Um, I'm Nina Hans. I'm a German-American poet and writer. Um, I have long blonde hair and I'm sitting in a living room with a 
nice bay window looking at um, a backyard. I'm here at my family home in Western Germany, in Essen. Um, and today I'm going to be reading an excerpt from Underdays, uh, which is an experimental recitation of Western Germany's coal industry and the landscape. And it kind of functions as an alternative map of the region. Um, it's mainly about time, place, and language through the description of the ground and the people on it, um, but sometimes about the people within it. Uh, this section is particularly about the systems and structures of underground tunnels that become mines and how they can be a way to understand sickness and their own bodies. Uh, I'm going to share my screen now to a collection of um, maps that show kind of the minerals um, in the region. They're very colorful and um, quite nice. All right. This is chapter four, filling tunnels. An adit, for the Latin word aditus, meaning entrance. The beginning. A shovel hits soil and the beginning has begun. The opening of an underground mine formed by driving at driving holes into the side of a mountain. An entrance leading to a mineral vein, the load, the quartz strains and ribbons, the adit and entrance beginning, but also the exit ending. It's 2019, the afternoon of September something, and the bell signals it's over. The pumping stops and the ground appears silent once again. Formed by times passing and pressures rising, rainwater settles in the dish towel squeeze of a tunnel. Although the coal mines were closed many years ago, the pits stay busy with preservation because of the gases, because of the liquids. Here, they stay still, stagnant. If it were not for the industrial care, oh so similar to draining. Mining tunnels are not as safe as other tunnels, smaller too, and their spaces can collapse because what appear to be walls are just illusions, just the ground. It is easy to forget how fragile these veins can be before the spilling, this leaking, an accident of blood cells catastrophe. I saw these tunnels in his hands, a miner's inheritance. All the leakage we labeled as bruises, it was a sickness which killed him. The leaking of blood from two little platelets, leukemia, blood cancer. A man with mineral channels for veins. What's the opposite of a tunnel? A cavern? The cap to seal maybe a bridge? My, gra my grandfather died three months after my father. When he stopped swallowing, so did I. Do you remember how hard it was to fill these tunnels? There's a law in Germany stating that the, that the dead must be buried, even when they are mere ashes, cremated. My aunt tells me for those who want to keep their relatives in mantle jars or to save their cinders to scatter their are loopholes. Harmless deceits of the state, she says. Like going to the Netherlands to register a grave plot out of country, any place, where they don't mind if you take the ashes home, where they don't mind that the graveyard 
It's just another place for soil. Nameless graves are the worst, for they have no space at all. Elsewhere, an underground forest rushes through a mine. It's 1942. Man-made monoxide gas and coal dust meet in the tunnel like arteries clogging. The workers can bring, are bringing up coal to the Bensihu Colliery in the Liaoning province of China. And before they can finish, there is an explosion. Part of the hazards of fossil fuels, generally, of digging. They call this too an accident, the crippling of the ground, the loss of workers. More than 1,500 miners are buried in an instant under time. All too familiar, happening too often time. It's 1906, another time of a mass explosion and underground fire. A time once again for the earth to reject its commodification. This time it's in France, the pits of Corriere, and there are 1,099 people. More names forgotten. Elsewhere, in 1914, another earthly, unearthly, all too earthly coaling accident. This time in the Mitsubishi Horio coal mine on the Japanese island of Kyoshu, 687. We can hardly call these accidents, maybe the disasters of foretold risks. As much as energy is a part of coaling, so is death, the inescapable collapse of organic matter. That's what connects all these places. We start by digging holes that eventually become tunnels below all the sand castles and starfish in hope of coming out safe on the other side. But despite our centuries of digging, time shows us the unpreventable, the unpredictable and that there are always more catastrophes to cover. The inevitability of an ending. It's 2014, July 4th, and tiny thuds of soil fall in the wood-laced urn, trying to fill the black void tunnel of a body's space. To, cover, to be covered or bury, maybe the opposite of tunneling is rest. Thank you. Thanks, Nina. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Laura Robertson. I'm sitting in my room in Liverpool in the UK. I'm wearing a white dress and I have black hair. And there's a picture of a ghost behind me from my book, Alive Asleep, a horror memoir, which I'm going to be reading from today. Uh, the book's in progress and I started it this year as part of the MA. Um, I actually wrote the majority of it during uh, the lockdown, which is quite an odd experience. Um, the book is part memoir, part eulogy, and it mimics the feelings of sleep deprivation, I suppose. And it hovers around two central characters, me as an unreliable narrator and my cancer-stricken dad who died about 15 years ago now. And it just tries to look to art and culture and horror in particular in order to get a grip on our grief as a shared thing, even though he's not here anymore. The book's addressed to him and he's absolutely over my shoulder as I'm writing it. We traverse 
sleeplessness as a bit of a territory that holds fragments or textures of horror, swooping towards empty spaces, holes and portals, nightscapes, dreamscapes, the monstrous and the grotesque, illness, stasis, metamorphosis, and in particular it looks at female artists like Belinda Brookier, Gora Dossier and Helen Scherfbeck. The extract I'm going to read today is um, about sitting with my dad in a hospice in Liverpool. Your hand rests lightly in mine as an ornament would. Your nails have been clipped and cleaned, I realise absently, that someone has given you your manicure. What is intimate thing to do for the unconscious. The cotton bed sheets have that intense clean softness that only thousands upon thousands of washers can achieve. Using a hard detergent, bleached and tumble dried on a dry heat. They have a stringent purity about them. How many others of these sheets swaddled? A squirrel occasionally rustles in the undergrowth outside. A shocking noise against the silence. It may as well bang on the window. And every time it's out there, I swivel on my seat to search for it amongst the trees as if it's the first time I've ever heard one. You don't hear it. I'm not sure what you hear anymore. It sometimes takes a minute or two to spot the squirrel as there are so many crisp leaves and their bodies are so perfectly camouflaged, motionless in on the game, a tease through the glass. It stares in, I stare back. It could always be the same one, or it could have friends. I'm on the lookout for squirrels all day long. There's nothing else to do but keep sentry over you. Hold your hand, occasionally dab your lips with a wet flannel, apply a touch of Vaseline, adjust the bedding. Your body looks like it could deflate if I poked at it. Talking to you doesn't feel right without you answering. I'm too self-conscious to hold up one end of a chat. As soon as the words leave my mouth, they become stale, silly. I don't like the way they reverberate in this sparse room and it's worse than talking to myself. In fact, it underscores your absence, which is still startling every time I look at you. It's like I forget flustered, reminded of this situation, this bizarre new state of things. Where are you? Are you dreaming? Wherever you are, you're in there deeply and indefinitely. I wonder how many other visitors are in today, on guard, performing a similar shift, how many others talk to themselves. It's like entering church. Each room here has a TV and ours is turned off and I can't hear anything from any of the adjoining rooms. Like us, the other residents have faced with relief the window. So the rustling things and soft breeze, the coo 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 of wood pigeons, hammering rain and recently snow. I don't want to see the room and what's in it. So I gaze intently out of the window for hours at huge snowflakes fluttering down onto thin branches, lazily gathering onto clumps heavier and heavier until oomph all of it eventually slides as one opaque load onto the hardened soil below. Remember a few days ago when we walked around the garden at the front of the house? 
You strolled ahead as usual, and I followed, watching. Alert to you needing me, wrapped up in that massive fleece and jogging pants and scarf and bucket hat, all too big for your skinny frame. Puffing out hot plumes of ciggy smoke that accumulated above your head for a few seconds before disappearing into the frost. Lost in your own thoughts, in a silent garden, followed by a silent daughter, dancing around the obvious, not wanting to spoil anything. Neither of us knowing what to say, but the garden making it okay not to say anything at all. Snow makes everything clean for a while coating every exposed and dirty surface with glitter, more and more until it completely hardens, trapping everything underneath it in a slippery crust, turning frozen litter and dog shit into ankle snappers. Here, the snow is safe for frail feet, built up in textured layers over a polite foundation of lawn and tidy woodland floor, as if prepared for hazardous conditions maintained by staff who you never see. It is, of course, a ghost ship. The snow hushes everything. Traffic from the A565, pots and pans from the kitchen, the rattle of payphone handles being replaced, sobbing, chirpy one-way conversations. But even in the middle of summer, it'd be like this. Enveloped in a respectful calm, the people here having a patience for the struggles ongoing within, at the edge of the world and at the edge of life. Your hand just twitched. I listen carefully for your next breath, eyes fixed outside. Thank you. Wow, these are so great. All of them. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I haven't heard them until now, so really exciting to get to hear everyone talking about. I loved it. I'm sorry, I just made a list of words. Branches, tunnels, caverns, roots, holes, portals. Um, I love this. Okay, <laughs> so now I have to start being coherent and um, going to lead the discussion in some sort of fashion. Um, well, maybe starting from this list of vocabulary words that has sort of uh, enveloped me in a really lovely way, a very evocative way. Um, I think maybe we'll start granularly and then move out to a larger scale of social concerns. I think that one of the um, questions on my mind always whenever I venture into writing about the body or illness is um, a kind of hesitancy that because I'm talking from a position that is not considered universal by virtue of me being something other than a cishet white man, um, I've noticed that my craft as a writer tends to get subsumed to my content. And so I guess the question that I would have for each of you is what sorts of decisions did you make around the craft in your, in your pieces in terms of syntax? Um, there were a lot of etymologies I noticed, especially in Hattie and Nina's um, pieces. Uh, yeah, vocabulary, syntax seemed really important here, but also just on the level of the line, I think you all are doing things with your form that is meant to 
like what Laura just said, that it's supposed to sort of mimics forms of sleep deprivation through the writing. So my question, yeah, would be how did you think about craft and form when you approached these topics? And if you had any specific decisions that you made around things as, as mundane as uh, syntax or punctuation or line breaks. <laughs> yeah, anyone can start. Um, I'll dive in then quickly. Um, it took me such a long time to break away from a normal type of writing that I got used to, because I'm more used to magazine writing, um, review, interview, feature writing. Uh, the writing that I was doing around artworks, books, films, that kind of have this gut punch or this form of horror or grotesque kind of feeling that I was after. I started writing about it as if I was reviewing it and explaining it and it just wasn't right at all and it was only when I started to go back to old diaries and sketchbooks um, and also just write in a way that's very non-magazine, non-art world. Like I've got a Liverpool accent, uh, you know, things that I say, ciggies or, you know, instead of cigarettes or whatever just writing as if I was talking suddenly became important and that might seem so obvious but for someone who doesn't do that very often uh, that became a massive thing for me and actually really made me pay careful attention to syntax for sure and what exactly I was trying to do with all these very short texts and it seems it seems increasingly obvious that sh very short chapters were the only way I could write as well, struggling with migraines and anxiety, writing this, um, and not being able to use the computer very much. Um, speech to text, text software suddenly became mega important and useful. So by the process of writing it, that's, that's the feeling that started to kind of come out of the writing as well. It, 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 mimicked, it mimicked the environment in which I was writing in. So, mm been a really strange experience and hopefully that that difficulty is imbued in the text because I don't have any answers for anything I don't have any answers for grief after all this research <laughs> I don't have any answers and it's definitely become a text of trying to feel more and feel scared and become obsessed with that that feeling of, of fright and horror and trying to communicate that in some way mm. if that makes any sense mm. yeah I hear that it's kind of like the the vernacular or the conversational way that you were experiencing these kind of also was maybe it was better to foreground this rather than to make some sweeping declarative statement or theoretical reasoned argument or something, which I think kind of maybe to jump over to, um, to Nina, I was thinking about this conflation that you were doing right with, with the body and the land. Um, so where I was getting with Laura's piece, a much more kind of, localized uh, vernacular, I was also getting that with your piece, especially because in your, um, in the 
Google file that you shared with me, you speak about a German word um, that you also work with a lot in this piece. What is it? Um, Bergmannsprache. Bergmannsprache, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I think with Laura, I also kind of blindly kind of thought, um, thought like, I'm gonna deal with my own grief by seeing how the land deals with grief and trying to see how, you know, after um, centuries of mining and then also war and um, how, how the land behaves and kind of rehabilitates itself. But actually, like, when you look at the ground, just like the simple, you know, a simple landslide, you know, around, uh, around the corner from my house will take years to kind of like rebuild itself. So then I kind of shifted a little away from that and then reflected more on how I was kind of filling this space of loss. And for me, it was very much like throwing like rocks in a tunnel just to try to kind of, not necessarily like in the excerpt I read, it's more about like draining and cleaning it and maintaining it when I think personally my strategy my is kind of just to fill words and to you know cover the silence and to keep the people who we lost kind of in our memory but um i think this all kind of like links to the craft um of my writing because i wanted it to be on the surface like a beautiful text but i also wanted to kind of break with the language because I'm living and writing about an area of Germany where um, it's very industry heavy and it's not, um, you know, and that's reflected in our language that this Bergmannsprache, so Bergmann is the minor um, and Sprache language. So the language, it's one of the oldest um, trade-based languages that still exist today. Um, and that's also where the name Underdays from our project comes from. It's a literal transition translation from Untertage, which is this um, example for the Bergmannsprache, this under the days, working under the days, being underground, um, and this kind of conflation, um, which I kind of, which kind of like links a lot of these theories of place and time and um, language that I kind of tackled throughout the piece. Um, so yeah, I wanted it to sound beautiful, but also like, <laughs> I was so shocked when I sent the first half to my ad advisor, Chris White Wozniak, and I saw on his screen, because we were sitting next to each other, on his Word document, I had all these like hanging clauses and like all these red squiggles. And I was so shocked because somehow I had like, programmed my word to you know deal with my kind of language but then uh, and like how I how I kind of have running sentences and clauses that just kind of hang there and float there and ask you to kind of dissect them I was so shocked with how much red was highlighted in his word document um, so I think that but that's exactly what I was trying to do that the Bergmannsprache the local dialect is is not high German it's not proper um it does in a very like beautiful charming endearing way not conform to um to regular like rules of language and so i yeah very much wanted to achieve that in my in my writing as well
Yeah, I, I really like how you take this figure of the tunnel and I mean, you tunnel into it, obviously, but you also kind of put it in many different places. You put it underground, you put it under the skin of someone. And I saw a lot of confluences here between yours and, and Hattie's uh, piece, because I thought also that the tunnel is kind of a similar uh, figure or just visually as a branch, which um, Hattie, you are using this a lot in this word Angie like the branches of veins and arteries. And, um, and I also saw a relationship there between the use of etymologies, which um, last year, uh, Quinn Latimer wrote an essay for a book uh, that I was a part of. Uh, and I was so, uh, well, I loved the essay, but I was very dragged because she kind of says, you know, that she should stop using etymologies as a way to <laughs> make a point. Um, <laughs> so yeah, maybe to, to Hattie now, what are the choices that you're making around vocabulary terms and really like kind of tunneling into the etymology of one particular thing? And then if I can complete my metaphor, branching out <laughs> throughout your your text? Yeah, well, the use of etymologies was, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very important because for me, I wanted to work through these you know, systems of codes to find these objects and work through them myself to try and rewrite its metaphors. Like, there's a lot of monstrous metaphors that come with looking at cancer and the objects of illness um sort of othering these parts and in terms of in terms of form I, I felt like the only I mean it's taken me years to try and you know write about this um in terms of form I felt the only way I could really write about it was in fragments or as Laura says in like short short chapters and the more I thought about it the more I realized that it actually it kind of mimics the way you look back on sort of like trauma, but also the way that diagnosis happens, like cutting, cutting things into parts and, and working through, tunneling through bodies to get at the root of like strange phenomena, um, kind of trying to fix it with sources and to flatten it and, um, hold it and yeah stop it from moving and growing and giving it names that relate to all sorts of things and etymologies um so yeah so that's so that's how that, that's the form of my piece but then it starts to get a lot messy messier as soon as um i start encountering these objects like digital scans or going to the pathology museum or um finding you know specimens of my own illness and working through that subjectively like sort of giving it a, a, a new language well you have this fabulous line her etymology is deceptive which yeah. i thought was very um i wrote it down i thought it was very um it speaks about a lot of different things you know mm -hmm. if you just take that sentence out you can use it to describe a lot um 
And there was something there too in your work around roots, which you know both are used to describe how language works, but then also how a cancerous, you know, batch of cells kind of roots into something in the body. Mm -hmm. I liked that a lot. Thank you. Okay, Harriet. Um, in terms of granular craft in your piece, um, I thought it was quite interesting how you're really troubling this idea of invisibility, um, making kind of a, a trouble there in terms of is it really invisible or is there a hyper visibility to certain kinds of illnesses in terms of how they present themselves and what that presentation does to someone who has it? Um, and I also um, wanted to ask you about how you're thinking about that in terms of this idea of writing an existence into being or writing yourself into being sort of like out of an invisible place into a visible one or maybe vice versa? Yeah, I guess um, the writing, the visibility, I guess is on quite a personal level in the sense that it's probably not been something that I've spoken about much. And I guess writing this project made me realize, I think this is an experience that um, all of us might have as, might have as parallels is with writing it, there comes a nature of this sort of admission as well. And this sort of, exposition that once you've written that and you put that out wherever you put that out even if that is just onto paper or laptop or whatever that is already it's out there in some kind of in some kind of weird way I don't know I felt like that was quite a distinction personally so um yeah I guess that that came kind of with that this idea um and also that this kind of visibility or invisibility kind of comes from the nature of like performance in some ways and the then there's also like it's a kind of as you said it's like troubling it but like um there there also becomes like there's difficult levels with that in the sense that i'm aware of like when i've experienced chronic illness i've been well enough to be able to perform the kind of wellness thing you know like and that's something that you're kind of unconscious of doing at the time but on reflection can see and then the sort of inherent privilege within that um so i think there's this sort of idea of invisibility and visibility is something i thought about a lot um and also this kind of idea of like testing the body in all the different ways like testing quite literally um and also the idea of chronic illness physically and like mentally testing the body i guess um, so I think all of these kind of ideas of like testing and visibility and those kind of things took on multiple meanings, which I kind of grappled with um, a bit throughout. Um, yeah, and I think also um, it's interesting that Hattie, you were saying about the fragments as well. I think I was also kind of approaching this in a fragmentary nature, which kind of shifted between and not that this should be so binary but it kind of felt like it was to me like the personal and the kind of analytical and I think it's something I struggled with the whole way through like drawing that line in the sand of what is personal and what is kind of political and what is analytical about the like the language of illness or the kind of representation of illness and in the end it kind of all merged into one um but they're definitely there definitely is shifts in the text between those two things as well if they can be seen as two things which <laughs> yeah i think that's a great um a great place to kind of segue into a, 
into the larger scale question, which I think is something that all of your texts are dealing with in different ways. And certainly this um, year has brought to the attention of everyone um, exactly how illness uh, is valued in society. I feel like one of the kind of primary things that COVID-19 produced is to really visibilize um, how care is, you know, systematically devalued. Um, whether or not you're quote unquote taking care or giving care, you know, wherever you are in this sort of, um, uh, how you are oriented around care, I think that the general, uh, you know, just being defined by care in any way devalues you as a human. Um, and it sort of becomes this invisibilized position in terms of the labor around care. Certainly we've seen this in COVID-19, how most of the people kind of quote unquote on the front lines um, are vastly uh, underpaid, exploited, not supported, et cetera. Um, and, you know, interesting that so much of that care work is feminized sorts of labor, um, nursing, but also like grocery store workers and um, food, uh, labor. So I guess the question to kind of end on is um, sort of this larger question of how you were relating your work to a political uh, question as well as an audience. I think that like Harriet, you really specifically, in, at least in the extract that you read, address this in terms of, you know, who is uh, your presumed reader? What are they supposed to be um, getting out of this? Is this, are you providing them a catharsis? Um, are you, uh, you know, beholden to them in a certain way? Are you, you know, where is your position within um, your being the author? to your reader. So I think that that is something that can then get scaled up into how you see your works speaking to a larger political question of right now or uh, an issue that's been around for a long time. Um, yeah, why don't we go in reverse? So Harriet, you can start with this one. Um, so I think it's been kind of like since the development of COVID and since March, I've been thinking a lot about how I really wanted to kind of um, emphasize one of my main sort of aims with the text for a reader was to emphasize this feeling of the fragility of health, which before I had a personal experience with chronic illness is something that I don't think I would have been able to recognize, despite people around me living with illness or going through periods of illness in their life. Um, and I think it's something really hard to comprehend generally, um, but that maybe COVID, the like horrific experience of COVID and living through that has kind of brought that into the foreground for a lot of people. Um, I mean, in, in the sense of like people being worried about going out and catching COVID or whatever. Um, so I think that's something that I've been thinking about since writing and submitting the text, but was probably a focus in a different way whilst writing it. And I guess also politically, it's this idea as well of, um, again, I mean, I used this word earlier, but these sort of binaries of like health and illness, which I just really wanted to kind of examine and think about what that means and what that means for people and for 
for people who live with chronic illness in the long term and never you know have some days waking up feeling as quote unquote normal but and other days waking up feeling you know whatever what whatever ailments or problems or symptoms or pain affects us on those days and I think that's something that I just have really have really struggled with with the text but I kind of realized whilst writing it that that's something that I wanted to explore and let the reader struggle with as well in a way um and yeah I hope I've managed to do that but it was something that I kind of realized kind of like you said Laura I have no answer to you and maybe and maybe there isn't but how we sort of yeah narrativize people um as either healthy or sick and also this kind of reclamation of the words of surrounding sick and sickness and illness and and not just looking at, at wellness as this kind of aspirational instagrammable format and what that the kind of also the kind of dangers of that i write a lot about the sort of toxicity of wellness and sort of aspirational thing that we may never achieve and it shouldn't be something pitched as achievable anyway so I think that's sort of where those elements kind of come in. Anyone want to jump in? <laughs> yeah, I can, I can try to answer in terms of my own writing. I think uh, the text kind of like intersects between like these three bubbles of health and capitalism and land justice and how, you know, capitalism has um, prioritized, you know, uh, like the individual over the collective. Um, and, you know, me looking particularly at the mining industry, but then also later how once mining um, in the region stopped, uh, we turned to kind of these chemical industries and um, a lot of people, you know, were being, uh, like exposed to harsh chemicals before, um, you know, there were necessarily like the safe, the safest conditions. Um, and yeah, it's also just a region where there's like a lot of migration, my own family coming um, from Poland as foreign workers um, and the still continuing uh, to this day. And yeah, how health, um, yeah, how like, um, this issue of like land justice and the environment and conservation is equally like a issue of um, like it's, it's also a, a feminist issue and um, how certain ways we exploit it here will affect certain people living here but also how um, you know other communities that are maybe more vulnerable or you know, for example, like closer to, um, like I focus more on the ground, but uh, the rising uh, climate um, crisis is also just causing certain um, regions to eventually be like over flooded um, or uh, affecting like their access to food and stuff like that. And I think this is all, it's so hard to juggle all of all of the environmental crises that are happening right now, along with kind of um, you know Black Lives Matter, but also just giving uh, 
like trying to work together to protect you know your neighbor and to think about the collective um during a pandemic um so even i yeah I, like i know i have had to you know consume more plastic recently and um yeah it's, it's hard it's hard to find like the right balance <laughs> i hope that answers your question <laughs> Yeah, Laura, do you want to <laughs> take it now? I find it really interesting um, talking about the language of, of illness and as you say, Johanna, the language of platitudes, like thinking about get well soon and, you know, take care and, and when, you know, against Harry's kind of pin-sharp observation of, of this kind of defiant language of fighting or defeating a disease. Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and all this bullshit and I think critique of this is more more important now than ever and you can only kind of start with your own observations I think in the text that I've produced so far I'm writing about things that kind of ping between the power of care versus a profound carelessness and cruelty, which is within systems of care, you know, on a very personal and uh, specific level. The experience that I had in a large hospital with my dad when he was very ill, uh, compared to the, the experience in a hospice with very underpaid staff and uh, volunteer staff, whose kindness was almost overwhelming and these two very extreme experiences that we can have it's very difficult but I'm, I'm it is very difficult to write about it but we're all we're, we're all making our own attempts aren't we I think the more we try to write and critique the language of illness the more we can understand it and resist really um, the things we're being told to do and the ways we're meant to behave and things we're meant to say about ourselves. I agree with what you were all saying earlier about um, this whole conversation probably wouldn't have been possible just a few months ago. Uh, it's wonderful to meet other people who can be honest and just talk very plainly about their hopes and aspirations as writers to kind of tackle this topic, but also just being very honest about our experiences. So I appreciate, appreciate uh, the opportunity to do that. It's, it's also writing as a proof of existence and thinking about what, when Nina was speaking, I just kept thinking about, um, you know, where I'm from in South Wales, when the mines are gone, they weren't replaced with anything. So it's just, I mean, and I feel like with COVID and, you know, in, in systems of, of capitalist systems, places of productivity are put above everything else. And um, where was I going with this? I completely forgot again. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I keep thinking of like society by definition never becomes ill 
and you know ordered ordered places and with covid it's just one big disruption and you know obviously people are finding it very difficult um i mean i do find staying indoors quite familiar but i i do i i do understand you know people's need to go out or um i understand why people why there are narratives around you know i don't want to wear a mask because this this is this but um yeah i mean me personally i think covid's not i feel like covid's not enough to get people to think collectively because people are trying to to, to not do that anymore um or finding excuses to not wear masks or protect their neighbors and i think yeah as laura said we have to just keep writing and shifting that those etymologies or like ways to describe illness within you know coded systems or like societies yeah i think that i would i would make the proposal that we maybe have some sort of a reckoning with this assumption that belonging to each other in a society should feel good. I think that over the next few years, um, my prediction, I guess, if I'm gonna just make one, is um, that it's not gonna feel very good uh, to recognize how we are bound to each other in a social, political, economic way. Um, I think that also that this maybe reckoning is coming to people for whom it's been, uh, the world has sort of allowed them to think that society is a quote unquote good thing. Um, I was thinking, Nina, about what you were talking about in terms of the climate crisis. I mean, in America, I think that the institution of slavery, of chattel slavery, um, required the plantation in order to work and the plantation I think in America is one of the most environmentally devastating uh, institutions that has ever been. So to me all of that is like my mind went there when you were talking about um, thinking of the land uh, as also a metaphor for uh, particularly vulnerable communities um, or the body of someone who is you know devalued as a human or not even considered to be a human at all does do, do you want to say anything to wrap up or any other concluding thoughts um, I just one note on, on what you were saying in regards to um in regards to covid and like the individual and the collective it's been horrific i think in the uk and i'm going to kind of assume that this experience is paralleled in the us as well because of how we're aligned politically are leaders trying to kind of uh, pull on the collective that they themselves have dismantled as such. And I, I feel like that's been so difficult to watch here, like people, uh, people in government suddenly saying, oh, now you are part of a collective, you know, like, mm -hmm. and also this whole narrative. Um, I mean, there was this quote, I think I might have spoken about this before, but there was this quote when Boris Johnson went into hospital with COVID. Um, that his father or something said like oh he's always perceived illness as a weakness of the mind and i just like i sat with that for days that we have someone who leads leads i mean but like who is our 
prime minister of the UK who just genuinely believes that it's disgusting like and I think that COVID has really laid those things bare people going oh yeah you know it's it's just people who are weak who will deal with this and it's like what does that what does that mean you know like again like you said it's that devaluation devaluation of like human life which has been really I think laid bare in the most kind of brutal way possible really yeah. well, the, the collective goes against the Tory philosophy full stop really and I mean I remember you saying before Johanna that um not one person can be doomed, only we can be doomed. And um, I think that that was something that our government had to adopt for the pandemic. And they've quickly decided that they don't have to do that anymore. And I feel a lot, I mean, I think a lot of us are feeling vulnerable again because of that. Well, yeah, thank you for this enlivening discussion. I'm really uh, glad that we got to talk about some of the greater implications of your practices and then also just the process that you went through for the, for the text that you read. Um, it's exciting to me also to get to hear a little behind the scenes um, about getting a degree in writing because I never did that. And so I'm always curious what students of writing are up to and what you're thinking about and how you approach what you do. So I really am glad that you had me here. Um, so I'm going to read a short, a short piece um, that's from my new book, uh, which is called Minerva the Miscarriage of the Brain and comes out on September 2nd. It's being co-published by Sming Sming Books and Wolfman Books in the States. And then actually for the UK and the EU, um, the distributor is Farhazy Ads, which is a project that's run in London that I participated in last year. Um, so it will be available through the Farhazy Ads website. Um, you can also pre-order, here I'm gonna do a little promotional plug. At the moment you can pre-order it. And the exciting part about the pre-order is you can get just the book or you can get some Hedva merch, which includes a t-shirt and a poster. Um, but what I'm really excited about with the pre-order is we also have an audiobook, which um, not just for accessibility, but we've also invited four um, musicians to contribute a track to it. So it's also um, an album. Um, okay, so this short text is called How to Write. It was the last text I wrote for uh, for the book. Um, is that true? I mean, other than the afterward. Um, and I wrote it rather recently. I wrote it this year. So I was in the process of um, finalizing the manuscript when COVID sort of uh, detonated. And so I was working on this piece, particularly around the time of March. Um, it has an epigraph from Georges Bataille. Uh, which I'll read first. I enter into a dead end. There all possibilities are exhausted. The possible slips away and the impossible prevails. To face the impossible, exorbitant, indubitable, when nothing is possible any longer, is in my eyes to have an experience of the divine. 
So this is Bataille. Okay, so how to write. How to write. Fall asleep. How to fall asleep. Pray to God. How to pray to God. Cover yourself in the oleagonous void until there is only a depthless black that slithers through the universe of yourself, spine to kipper belt, and then sing, sing with the infinite voice from this place, which is a cave and a glacier and a desert and an ocean, for God is nothing but and. How to sing the infinite void. It's easy, just surrender to it and it will rush in to surround you with its good music. It's so kind that way. How to surrender. This is tricky. It's hard to get right. Ask your mother, she knows. How to talk to your mother. Don't call her mother. Speak the via negativa. Sell your hair for a mirror. Fill the cave of yourself with nothing and let this nothing come alive with what it needs and the blissful certainty that it will get it. Yes, it will get it. The face of nothing is a mother's face. Don't call her mom. Research poverty so that you can defend it. Decode the moon by losing the cipher you used to decode it. Think of an oyster, not what it makes inside itself, but what it loses in order to make this, namely every other part of itself. Although the bit of dirt that originated the new thing, this, this becomes itself. And yet this does not have a name. Let moths infest your clothes and don't throw them out, but know their holes. Study her natal chart, understand her detriments and dignities, exaltations and falls, especially her moon. Calculate her high leg and alcocodon so that grief won't crack you in two when she dies suddenly. Know, perceive her death, prepare for it, make it its bed call it in. Tattoo yourself with the last image she sent you with the last thing she ever wrote, the word fog. At least we think this is what it said. Don't call her mama. See your death in hers, your birth in her death, the little door in her that you went through, which was never afterwards closed. You can call her by her name, but only so that it will eclipse your own. Let it eclipse your own. Don't ask her why she named you what she did. She will say she named you after her mother and her mother's mother, but this is not a name. This is a clock. This is an asymptote. This is a school. Talk to her all the time with everything you ever say or write or do or dream. 
talk to her, thank her, punish her, erase her, keep talking. You'll never run out of things to speak if you know that by speaking, you are bringing your mother her freedom, which is to say, her nescience of you. Don't talk of your love for her. She will know you're lying. It's because she taught you how to love, to lie, which is to say, to apprehend God. How to apprehend God. Become pregnant with nothing. How to give birth to God. Become pregnant with nothing. How to know the name of God, to unknow the name of knowing that nothing, a nothing which is, is something. Consider that some other words for pregnant are Paris and parturient and ansente, which also means to be enclosed behind a fortress wall, and gravid, which also means full of meaning. And let me remind myself that when I say the word pregnant, when I say the word nothing, I am speaking to the ontological conundrum of darkness, that most basic metaphysical dilemma, that a nothing is a something, which I have found can also mean a something that is a nothing. How to become pregnant with nothing. Right. Thank you for having me. So on that note, we will end our event. I want to congratulate you all on wonderful work and uh, for making this event uh, happen at all. I know that it was difficult to navigate all of the technological components. So kudos to you. And um, yeah, I'm very um, honored that you invited me. So thank you for having me here.